This week's episode was originally recorded on January 6. During the time of our recording, the Capitol building was evacuated. I'd like to begin this week's episode with a moment of meditation. Welcome back to Centering the Margins, the companion podcast to the book, How to Teach Contentious Issues in the Classroom by Francisco Ramos, available for $4.99 on Apple Books. As always, I'm Michael Batsecond, and I'm joined today by the author himself, Francisco Ramos, and we are glad you came back. If you are finding us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast service you prefer. This week, we discuss gender identity and sexual orientation. Michael, it's great to be back. I am so looking forward to today's conversation. I'm excited to be able to talk through gender identity and sexual orientation this week. I think that, and, I, and not to steal some of the things I know you're going to say later, but I think that you did such a great job of, of acknowledging the wellspring of oppression. Mm. Um, and this particular chapter kind of helps to, to point out like, yes, we've talked about, you know, marginalizations of, of the skin. Uh, and we've talked about, in some ways, you know, how we set up a classroom to avoid, um, you know, any sense of superiority relative to functions of, of white supremacy and or some functions of class. But mm -hmm. I think that there is definitely an opportunity here for us to to jump into how if I have the, you know, it's like comorbidities, right? So mm -hmm. like if I have one disease, I probably have another just depending on kind of how they show up and how they surface. Mm. And so, um, you know, as we get into to gender identity and sexual orientation more specifically, the key terms for this particular discussion seem like they are the most important to set up uh, before you actually kind of go any further. Um, so can you kind of walk us through why these particular terms are the ones you pulled? Talk, walk us through what they are and then why these are the ones you decided were what we needed to oscillate around? You know, that's a really great question. And before I unpack each of these terms, I'd like to provide a vignette that might be helpful in, in terms of understanding the definitions, why they're important, and the bigger so what that we're trying to get at. So we have a mutual colleague on campus who, um, you know, hasn't given pr us permission to identify them. So what we're going to do is uh, just share a vignette that was, that was shared with us. That really explains the broader so what of why these terms matter to people. And the word that describes a story is paper cuts. That every single time in an LGBTQ individual is um, misgendered, i.e. somebody uses the wrong pronoun, it's as if they're being given a paper cut. And... It starts out as a paper cut here and a paper cut there. And then slowly over time, 
an individual is walking around with um, these an infinite number of tiny cuts that have been given to them simply because their pronoun and their identity isn't being recognized in daily conversation. So I know oftentimes we, 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 you know, there's always a lot of talk around, gee, what's the importance of pronouns? Why does this matter? And it's really trying to center the voice of, and the experience of LGBTQ, LGBTQ populations and explaining paper cuts, paper cuts hurt. They're very painful. Um, you know, unlike everyday life, when someone gets a paper cut simply because their identity is not recognized, it's not like that paper cut heals. It's, it's there, it's open, it's exposed, it's invisible, and it can fester. So again, I, I really like, um, that story and the way it was explained to me, because I think it's quite useful in understanding all of these key terms and why they're so important um, and why we should take them seriously. So I'll first uh, lay out the terms and then I'll explain why. So the first term I always explain is gender. So in this context, gender refers to the attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a given culture associates with a person's biological sex. Uh, the next term, gender expression is an individual's presentation, including physical appearance, clothing choice and accessories, and behavior that communicates aspects of gender or gender role. Now, keep in mind, gender expression may or may not conform to a person's gender identity, right? Mm. Um, now, to springboard into gender identity, gender identity, I, I would argue, is one of the most important terms in this kind of, in, in this discussion, because it refers to a person's deeply felt inherent sense of being a boy, a man, or male, a girl, a woman, or female, or an alternative gender, such as genderqueer or gender nonconforming, which may or may not correspond to a person's sex assigned at birth or to a person's mm. primary or secondary sex characteristics. Now, my favorite example, and this comes from a conversation I had with somebody who's um, very close to me. And I know I always say like, I'm going to paraphrase a conversation, but I don't want to give anybody's name unless they give me permission. So I'm just going to say um, from somebody I very much respect. And this individual, this person has, um, well, is a, about to be a teenager. And one day the kid comes home from school and asks, mom, what is, uh, what is gender identity? Like, what does it mean to be queer? Um, and this individual said, you know, like, that's a really good question. Um, gender identity is some, you know, it's sometimes when what happens on the, how someone feels on the inside is not necessarily what matches on the outside. And I've always remembered that because that is the best definition of gender identity and the best and the most simplest way to put it is sometimes it's what's on the inside doesn't match what's on the outside. Um, right. That's always, always stuck with me. Um, so yeah, that I think is one of the most important terms in this conversation. Um, there's two more. Uh, the fourth one is gender diversity. 
So gender diversity refers to the extent to which a person's gender identity, role, or expression differs from the cultural norms prescribed for a people of a particular sex. Um, and then finally, gender dysphoria refers to discomfort or distress that is associated with a discrepancy between a person's gender identity and that person's sex assigned at birth. Um, so one of the best, and, and I, I would argue gender dysphoria is an incredibly important term that does not get enough attention and it should. Um, right. We both have a colleague at Duke University who works in the gender for sexual diversity, for gender identity and sexual diversity on campus. Um, an incredible individual. Again, I am withholding a name because I don't have permission to give a name. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be mindful of, of people's identities. Um, but the way it was described to me in terms of uh, dysphoria specifically was like every time I am misgendered, it's like getting a paper cut. And then I wake up and somebody refers to me as the wrong gender and it's another paper cut. It happens in this context, it's another paper cut. Mm -hmm. um, and that's always stuck with me. Um, so yeah, gender dysphoria, the distress and the discomfort, um, because that's really why gender pronouns um, are beginning and I think continue and will continue to play an incredibly important part and role in these conversations. And, and to be frank with you, one of the reasons why, why these terms, um, to get at the second part of your question, these are the, these terms allow me to make sure one, in terms of the classroom, that we're all starting from the same operational base or the same right. um, understanding, the same common understanding. That makes sense. Similar to what we've seen in, in prior episodes is that as these conversations are unfolding, we always have something, uh, in this case, a definition to come back to, to make sure that we're really all talking about the same thing. Um, and I know we've always talked um, in, in previous conversations online and offline about, you know, what kind of issues, uh, Cisco, are you going to talk about in your guidebook? I think gender identity and sexual orientation, um, I can't think of another issue in the past 15 to 20 years in American society that has made so much progress. I really can't. Right. Um, there's a lot of experimentation with language in terms of uh, different pronouns that are used. I don't want to get into the full range of, um, at least in this context, about um, about what people are are be, choosing to be referred uh referred to by um with gender pronouns those are all in the guidebook so um but there's a lot of experimentation and i think something that speaks to me personally about this particular issue that i can um that resonates deeply with me and again i've always said i'm a cisgender hetero man I approach and understand this issue through the lens of being told as a brown man that I am not an equal member of this society. There's a very simple phrase that I've penned, which I think applies to a lot of a lot of people, is that nobody in this society should have to pay an identity tax. You right. should. It should not be held against you if you are, um, however you choose to identify. Black, brown, queer, non-conforming, he, him, his, 
shouldn't matter. Um, so yeah, this is, um, this is one that's near and dear to my heart because, um, it's so central, it's so important. And I, and I think like a lot of people, we have friends who, um, are incredibly courageous, um, in what they're doing. And I am in awe would be the only way I can put it just in awe. So to me, it's that important. Um, and I wouldn't forgive myself if I didn't include it. Well, and, and to your point of, you know, the, the necessity for inclusion in this way, I think that, you know, if I think back to a, um, to the conversation that we had surrounding anti-racism, uh, pulling out the word intersectionality mm. in that moment um, that word is because of the duality of oppressions that a person maintained. Mm. You know, it was specifically applied in that sense, in, in Kimberly Crenshaw's sense, for uh, black women experiencing sexual violence. But we have to acknowledge that they were both black and women. And that was the thing that the court was overlooking. And so in this situation, when we were talking about folks who are not as so I myself, if I'm, I'm going to go ahead and dis, uh, disclose, I myself am also a cisgendered hetero uh, black man. So I'm going to give you all of the identities that I possess or a hetero Afro indigenous man would probably be the, the most accurate statement that I would call myself. Um, and my pronouns are he, him, his. And so, you know, knowing that I have, I maintain certain securities in lining myself behind being a man. There are certain privileges that I'm afforded because I'm a man. Yes, I lose some because I, I am Afro-Indigenous, but I gain some because I'm a man. Mm -hmm. uh, and I gain some even further because I'm a man whose identity aligns with what his body presents as. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the great things about this discussion is being able to give credence and space for those who have never walked in this realm before. Mm. I think most notably when you're in a college classroom, most no, or, or, or when you're in any classroom, but, you know, distinguishably when you're in a college classroom, mm. you know, these, this is a, a moment in time where students are trying to figure things out about themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard many, many stories from, uh, from conservative folks. And I say conservative people because that's typically where I've heard this language from, and that's not to make a broad brush statement. It's just where I've heard it in the, in the halls that I've been in. That's where it's consistently resonated. Um, but I've heard, you know, I, I don't want to send my child to that quote unquote liberal arts school because it will change them into something that they are not. When I think that the actual Mark definition is that it will free them to be the person that they are. Yeah. And so our job as educators is to do the to do no harm is to do no harm and to prepare students and give them the the words to better identify themselves so that they can also go out in the world to change it whether it be you know as king said to be the best janitor that you can be or you know maybe you are changing maybe you're curing cancer heck or solving the coronavirus mm -hmm. you know what i mean like those are things that have to be afforded you. And the only way that you can have the proclivity to do that and do it well is to be able to walk in the confidence of who you are. And that's in keeping with knowing yourself, but also knowing that people around you 
know who you are because yeah. you're allowed to make declarative statements about yourself. Mm. Um, so this, this whole idea, like going back to the, the, our colleague on campus who made the statement of the paper cuts, like, and we were just talking about this a moment ago offline, but I, I think that it is important. It is, it is paramount that we as educators are not adding paper cuts to our students. Absolutely. Because there's a point where, you know, we call it death by a thousand cuts. There's a point where even if not physical, because there's a point where people do choose to say, I'm done with this. You don't understand me. So I leave. Yeah. That is a real thing. Mm -hmm. But there's also the element that we kill people's spirits. We kill them emotionally. We kill them uh, uh, spiritually. Mm. We decimate who they actually are. I've actually been on several calls this week with folks who have talked about losing people in spirit because they have been put down in a very specific manner. They, they're the, who they are was intentionally relegated to nothing. So they were not allowed to see themselves as full human. Therefore they're not allowed to, to be full human. So in that conversation, what is and I know I just said a whole lot, and I and I'm gonna. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I and I feel like we need to, and I think we said it at the top of the show, but I want to just reiterate to to listeners, it, it, we are recording. It is currently January sixth at what time is it, Cisco? Uh, three fifty three p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right. So the Capitol building in the United States of America is currently under attack. I mean, for a lack of better terms, um, there are protesters who are running up into the building and doing some pretty crazy things right now. And so there's a little bit of an urgency that exists in this call. Uh, normally I think Cisco and I play a lot more and we're a little lighthearted. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, the, <laughs> I, there, there, there's time for games, man, you know, like, and, and there are certain things I will say this, right. Um, there are time for games. There's other times where like, there's no margin for error. Exactly. There is none. And I think that's the part of it. Again, we, we go back and forth, Michael, about different aspects of this guidebook. We can tell jokes. And there are other times where like, there are no jokes to be told. I, if mm. you know, like, I don't want to tell mm. you, like, like truly, if, if that's not what you're looking for, then you know what? Go bury your head in the sand. Right. Because exactly. right now there is a very, very real, and I remember I said this years ago, there's a very real fight about what the future of this country looks like in 2016. And I got I'm, I'm looking it up right now on my computer in 2016. I worked with and I was invited to give a workshop for the women in science and engineering on campus. And I remember vividly um, being invited early in the term. I remember I was really, really excited. And then I also remember that the election happened. And so granted, I get up and I don't remember what the um, what day the election fell on. But about two weeks later, um, I'm leading this workshop and it like the juju in the room is totally different, totally, mm. completely different. And I, I remember imagine. not being able to sleep for a handful of nights because I think like everyone else, you're like, wow, that happened. The other part of it was thinking, frankly, as an educator and somebody who's um, 
basically someone who's a leader. I never like using the word leader to self-describe. You know, it's one of these things like right. if you're good at what you do, you don't have to say it. So, yeah. So the thing my daddy used to say, if a lion has to tell you he's a lion, he ain't a lion. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, but it, it, come on, man. <laughs> and I remember waking up one morning uh, before this actual workshop and I just started writing what came down and I ended up writing, I don't know, 700 words, something like that, that was eventually turned into an article which was called inclusion in science, nothing less than our relevance as a community is at stake. And at the time I was talking about how um, the science community, whether people knew it or not, um, was in a very real fight about the relevance and role in society. Like that was abundantly clear to me. And it was at least with a lot of the science folks who are on campus and there that day, as a way to really talk about diversity and inclusion, this notion of belonging, who counts, you know, th these kind of things that we, we talk a lot about. Um, and that's the part of me again, that I just, I think the writing was on the wall years ago. And, right. I'll, and I'm looking at it right now. Um, and I'll read this paragraph verbatim. Um, let's see. And, and here I'm giving the why diversity and inclusion is important, but I'm talking about the under aspects of what of its centrality. Second, diversity and inclusion are central to how we construct knowledge. Who is in the classroom and research lab matters because they carry with them a unique set of experiences, skills, and knowledge that no one can learn or acquire on their own. Simply stated, by excluding others, we are harming and depriving ourselves of, of what we one day might become. In your everyday lives, you are surrounded by some of the brightest minds in the world, studying in one of the finest universities in the country. The idea that not everyone can participate in the knowledge construction process because of who they are, the color of their skin, the country of their origin, or how they identify flies in the face of the most fundamental tenet of what we're trying to achieve, that everyone is created equal and has something to contribute. If you take one thing away from what I'm telling you today, it is this. If we divorce knowledge from action, we may fall into the trap of reproducing the kind of conditions we are attempting to transform. I remember writing that vividly at, I don't know, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Um, that was true then. It is true now. It will be true in 10 years. That's the part of me again that we go back and forth and it's different. And, and I don't know, I'm just speaking off the top of my head off of notes. That's the part of me I think that, that gets lost in a lot of these conversations is that sometimes they feel like they get so abstract that people sometimes forget the so what question or why something is so relevant. And it takes these kind of moments to people, for people to wake up that there are right. very real, concrete, and practical consequences to our actions, to who we include and exclude, to the barriers that we can transform or the ones that simply because, hey, we're benefiting, so why rock the boat? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And see, and, th and this is the day that I think that we, that, that are, there's a section of us who have, have been moving into, we realize that 
our direct job is to rock the boat Mm -hmm. so that we don't have to worry about it being rocked anymore. Like if Mm -hmm. we fix it now, we get to, we get an opportunity to see, you know, uh, for example, like this, uh, this particular election cycle for the first time ever, we have two openly, or at least we have one who's openly transgender woman who was elected. Mm-hmm. And we have, I think, several openly gay uh, uh, representatives and officials who are elected. So, like, that is because, to your point from earlier, like, the fight for gender equality in this country has been so, inst- like, it, it's it's been instrumental beyond, I think, beyond words. I think we're doing almost a disservice to just call it that. Um, and, and it's been, it has been, for me, one of those things that... You know, I had to come to an understanding of the work that I have to do to make sure that we are making space for those who have been missing, yep. who have not been seen. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, to that point, like when we go to 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 like something as simple as the email sign off, you know, I've I believe very much in the idea of intentionally bringing uh, forward my gender pronouns. Um, in, in something as simple as an email sign off so that my students, when they interact with me, maybe if that's an identity that you have, you feel safe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's about trying to make a space because we're going to ask, we're asking students in a lot of ways to do things that are difficult. So we should be able to provide for them safety and security while they do other things that are difficult, right? Mm-hmm. That. That just makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. So I guess in the book, uh, you make a story, you, you, you make a point to talk about a central point that you make to your students before continuing. Mm. Can you please kind of nail that bad boy down for us so that we yeah. get a better understanding of what it is? I'll say it slowly, then I'll try to explain it as best as I can. Since conceptions of masculinity and femininity are not biologically fixed, but socially and culturally constructed. We cannot assume the gender pronouns of our students. We have to be mindful in terms of how we ask. I highly recommend subtle and confidential ways of learning so that students have the choice as to whether or not to make their gender pronouns known. Ultimately, the volition and choice to make information public is ultimately theirs. This is critical in terms of developing trust. So for me, I don't know, that was a brief reflection I had. There are different ways of going about this. And I think the two easiest ways, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound absurdly obvious, obvious, and I'll explain why here in a minute. The first one is emailing your entire class before the semester even begins. And I have explicit language in my email that says something to the effect of, hey, I, as your instructor, have access to your name and your gender as it appears on your application. If there is an alternative name or preferred pronoun that you have, please let me know and I will make changes to my notes before the semester begins, right? Very simple, very easy, maybe two or three sentences. Again, in a very low stakes way where if a student wants to let me know that they have um, a preferred pronoun, they can send me a private message, not that big a deal. I can make a change in my notes and we'll keep it moving. 
the second opportunity that I put forward for students to share, and that's if a student wants to share, is towards the end of the first day of class where I'll put forward a very simple slip of paper. In the guidebook, I call it a reference sheet where I ask a student, you know, you know, what is your preferred first name, preferred last name? Um, you know, what is what um, if you have a, an email address that you prefer to, for me to reach you out um, to, to contact you at? And is there anything that I should know about you that you haven't expressed already? Like it's a very open ended kind of question. And oftentimes students will fill in the blank with things that I couldn't even imagine anything from quite literally. Uh, I'm not a morning person. Mm. So, so, I mean, you think about it, it's sort of like, wow, it's, it's 9 a.m. Why is Cisco falling asleep? If they tell me they're not a morning person, I'm good with it. You know, hey, I'm glad you're right, here. Right. <laughs> right. Um, oftentimes it will be, uh, it could be, it has been in the past, uh, preferred gender pronouns. Um, students have told me even other sensitive matters um, that they would not feel comfortable sharing in front of their peers or colleagues. Um, but they will tell me now, granted the, in doing that kind of, in taking that kind of approach, I know that the most important thing in my mind is how do I find subtle and low stakes ways of developing trust? Because I really want an inclusive culture. That's the big thing that's at stake. So that's why I, I take these, um, uh, right. subtle and right. confidential ways of like, Hey, if there's anything you need me to know, please let me know. The other thing that I think um, is a responsibility that's there is whatever a student tells me, um, I commit it as best as I can to memory. I write it down in my private notes and I don't share them with anyone. Mm. You know, that that's the thing right. that, because trust is a two-way street, you know? It's right. to me that that is the most important part of it. And that, I think that's, an easy way and a low barrier for entry of implementing inclusive practices. So I, I guess I have a question sure. um, because I know that uh, oftentimes um, uh, uh, in certain spaces, it is common practice to go around a room and introduce yourself. And I spend time in circles where you go around the room, you introduce yourself and you would say your name, Mm -hmm. your pronouns, and then how you are connected to whatever the thing is or some ridiculous, like whatever the, the icebreaker is. Yeah. And so, for example, I would be like, hi, my name is Michael Betts. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, and I know Cisco because of I was a student because I was a student in his class. Yeah, that's how I'm connected to this. What are your feelings on doing activities like that? And that's, this can be a personal. You don't have to be making a declarative statement for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what are your feelings on uh, on something as simple as that uh, being presented in a space that is public? So I, I think there. Well, let me let me take a step back. I'm speaking for myself. I don't want to generalize or impose or any of that stuff. Um, I think there's several things to keep in mind in deciding whether or not that approach is right for you. Um, um, who's your audience, right? How I would go about teaching graduate students, undergraduates, or um, students in K through 12, it's going to be very, very different. So one, who's your audience, right? right. I think the second one is um, a lot of times as the educator, I know from my own personal experience, students 
take their cue in terms of their maturity as well as terms of their expectations from the instructor slash professor. So if right. I, as the instructor slash professor know, you know, if I'm walking into a context and, you know, I think the, it's appropriate for an audience um, and I'm comfortable in my own skin that gives off a presence of saying like, okay, I, there is a higher likelihood that students will participate if they want to. Um, right. Now keep in mind, um, if the audience question, if, if you have, I think you generally as an educator have your own questions of like, you know, I don't know if this will work in a high school classroom, then don't do it. You know, again, it's such a context dependent approach. Right. Um, exactly. And, you know, I know that based on how I carry myself, the language I use, um, and it, and it sounds kind of silly. What, what about it? Even like the confidence that one can project, you know, um, that can set the tone and make people more open to sharing. And frankly, if I am going to do it in the classroom, and I've certainly done it, um, full disclosure, I am the one that will go first. Right. I'm not going to ask a student to put themselves out on a branch, particularly if it's the first time they're meeting their peers. I'm going to do it. Signal to everyone that it's okay. And frankly, if you don't want to share or if you just want to say pass, that's cool too. You know, again, it's trying right, to walk right. this balance between how are we inclusive? Um, how do we protect um, a student's volition and choice to make information public? I think that's a very reasonable way of, of approaching it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and I, and I think that again, it's it, the, I like the function of the case by case, like take into consideration the room you're in <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah. read the room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I just, I, I, you know, again, and, and it's something, you know, I think in, um, so in this other class I teach, it's called the fundamentals of college teaching. The, when we're talking about learning objectives or we're talking about how do we make material more relevant to students, students that one of the, the, the very first thing that we ask we meaning instructors in, in the certificate college teaching program ask our students to consider is, you know, truly who's the audience? Like, right. Is it appropriate for them? Like these very basic questions that I think in the minutia of day-to-day -day life and trying to prepare a syllabus, trying to prepare, trying to think about grades, how's this going to work, et cetera. It's very easy to gloss over these, um, I, what I think are very foundational questions that, this semester is built upon. Right, right. So I, I, I want to talk about kind of classroom and procedural practice. Uh, I guess in, in, a, in a, both in the, this is how we normalize, but also in the, what do we do in the situation? Similarly to a question I'd ask a couple episodes about, uh, a couple episodes ago, about students not seeing the humanity of other students, potentially. Mm. Um, what do you do in situations where you do have an antagonistic student who is supposed to be there, has the rights to be in that space because they're paying for the same kind of, of, uh, of access, you know, to knowledge, mm. but that student is not treating another student with the respect that this student is asking for. So say, for example, you have a student who, is either a transgender student or presents as a woman, but goes by man pronouns. And you have another student who is 
if if not intentionally antagonistic, has not made the effort to acknowledge that pronoun. Um, what are ways that you would help to curb that behavior um, in the classroom? That's a really, really great and important question. Um, I think there's several approaches that I would absolutely recommend, and some of these I've, you know, I've certainly um, taken in real time. Um, and I think this combines some of the lessons that we've talked about in the previous episodes where, you know, on one hand, it's a really difficult spot to be in if you're an instructor, because there's several dynamics going on at the same time. And I think they're worth absolutely acknowledging. Um, on one hand, as Michael, as you mentioned, of a student not recognizing the identity of another student in front of everyone. On another hand, as the teacher and as the instructor, it's trying to figure out, okay, how do I acknowledge and rectify what is happening right in front of me? And as gracefully as I can, try to keep us um, on track with our discussion and and what we're working through as a class, what we're, le- what we're learning about. Um, so in this instance, I, I know I mentioned it uh, last time in our discussion on anti-racism in the classroom. I would absolutely start talking about the history and where some of the identity markers come from. So to give you an example, it took over 80 to 90 years for LGBTQ activists working around the country to get sodomy laws off the books. Right, right. So in addition to widespread activism that had to happen and go state by state by state to get to the point where we could have some kind of federal ruling about the expansion of of civil rights, of marriage rights, marriage equality, um, you know, I think that's one dynamic. The other dynamic that I think is always there but is never fully acknowledged is that we just happen to be living in a time where a lot of this movement and a lot of this progress is going on and we're alive. Exactly. Exactly. You know, this happened, marriage equality happened in, correct me if I, if I get the year wrong, I believe it was 2015 when the U.S. Supreme Court rendered their decision. Um, but it took 90 years yep. to get to that yep. point. And we are just now seeing formal recognition of identities uh, for LGBTQ populations, an expansion of rights that I would argue um, has been absolutely dramatic. And I think we've seen the most expansion in the past 15 to 20 years. Um, Right. So in in addition to that, so you're in the classroom providing a historical background, then it's as best as one can putting students in the shoes of, can you imagine what it would be like if um, somebody didn't recognize who you are simply because of who you are. Mm. That who we love is not a choice. Um, that, you know, depending on who we are as individuals, we can't hide our markers of identity. So if you are, um, black, brown, uh, for some, if you present as um, androgynous, non-binary, queer, uh, gay, lesbian, um, you can't hide that. And, you know, I think there is a, um, 
in it, in having that conversation, I think it's also worth mentioning to students, um, you know, and this is something, again, we've seen in the research um, over and over again is um, one of the primary ways that um, there has been such an advancement in LGBTQ rights is simply because people know at least one person who is uh, gay or lesbian. So odds are, if this student is saying something uh, very harmful in class, it's being able to pause for a moment and say, you know, without being too personal, obviously, um, you know, odds are that someone you know in this classroom is being negatively affected by what you're saying. And, right. you know, right. when we started this semester, and I'm, and I'm speaking as if I'm actually in the class right, right now, because this is something that's happened, um, not at Duke, but um, at previous institutions. Um, you know, but when we are in the classroom, and when we started this class, we all agreed that we would hold ourselves to a certain standard. And one important component of that standard and this notion of being equal citizens in a classroom is that we do have responsibilities and obligations to one another, that we are not independent from one another, but we are interdependent upon one another. And right. so, I, I, in the, again, pretend I'm in the classroom. So I want everyone to pause for 30 seconds and I want you to be silent. And when those 30 seconds are up, we're going to start here and we're going to keep moving forward together. And I, and I, you know, then this is a, it's a really hard question because, you know, Michael, you pose it as sort of what do you do in this particular moment in my mind? And I can even feel it within me sometimes, uh, some of these dynamics, because I know that you know, I can provide as a, as you you heard me demonstrate um, a little bit of context about where some of the some of some terms uh, come from. Um, you can hear me try to acknowledge um, without personalizing individual students. You mm -hmm. heard me reference um, our agreement as a class about how we treat one another during these kinds of conversations. Um, now keep in mind if, you know, and I'm saying the vast majority of time that seems to work for me. Um, but in the rare instance where if a student were to double down or, um, you know, just completely go against the rules that were established by everyone in the classroom, then I think it becomes really, really important to reemphasize and I think potentially put into action um, some of the guiding rules around these conversations. And I think it was in the second episode that you and I talked a lot about this. Um, and it's certainly in the second chapter of the book um, about sort of how you can go about enforcing these kinds of um, um, correctives for behavior. Um, because at the end of the day, um, it's not pleasant. It's not fun. Um, learning 90% of the time, um, how do I describe it? 
uh, impediments to learning 90% of the time aren't about learning itself. It's the stuff around learning that makes it difficult for most students. And this certainly falls in that category. Um, and I can speak from my own experience, you know, whenever I'm um, giving workshops or working with graduate students or even some cases um, with uh, faculty, um, there's two things that keep coming to mind. Um, a definition I was thinking about in my mind as I was talking was sometimes, you know, privilege in this case, um, I always define privilege as the absence of obstacles. Mm. And in this mm -hmm. case, what an incredible privilege it must be for someone to not have to worry or ever consider how they might be referred to. Mm -hmm. And working with, you know, students and faculty and educators, how can you learn if 90% of your mind or the vast majority of your energies are just around how do I survive today? How do I survive these experiences so right. that I know that right. I'm okay? Right. So again, it, it's a really great question. It's a really hard question. And I encourage folks to be very brave. And I do mean that word brave and courageous in addressing it in the classroom. Because at the end of the day, these kind of interactions in my mind are you know, we always talk about questions of dignity. We talk about a lot about questions of respect or recognition, but this is what those terms can look like in actual practice. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and and to that point, you know, there in even in just gendered spaces. Period. You know, there's a proclivity of. Uh, of one particular gender to feel more empowered mm -hmm. uh, for various reasons. Um, and so can you talk us through ways that a educator could potentially dissuade, for example, men who tend to be more uh, empowered because of the societal norms and because of the fact that, uh, I mean, similar to the way that when you're talking with people of color, um, there's an understanding that, that we have to explain ourselves more, uh, women and LGBTIQ folks have to explain the reasons why they feel or the reasons they don't talk, or th there's an explanation that, that exists. Mm. Uh, how would you go about, um, empowering voices that are less heard in a classroom uh, versus voices that tend to feel socially and societally empowered to speak whenever they want to. Mm -hmm. That's such a great, great question. And I think there's a couple of low hanging, very easy, easily implementable things that can be done. Um, so I'll start there. Um, one common practice is can be something as simple as utilizing a talking stick. Now, that <laughs> that might seem like really Cisco we're talking about a talking stick and I'm like, no, think about it, right? If the if right. we are trying and working to address gender dynamics in the classroom and if we know that for example, and, and which side note, there is a reservoir of research finding in the guidebook 
that explain and show how gender dynamics show up in the classroom. So I don't want to get into mm. all of them here. I'm just, it's a side note. Right, um, right, right. But utilizing a talking stick, it's ensuring that, you know, every time somebody holds a talking stick, for example, they have 30 seconds, a minute, 90 seconds, but they have a set period of time to actually to actually talk, to explain where they're coming from, to contribute to the conversation. Having a simple rule such as, okay, only the person who has the talking stick can actually talk, and you can't get the talking stick again until everyone else in the classroom has actually, actually contributed something. And if somebody doesn't want to contribute something, all you have to do is um, either say you don't want to, you you have nothing to contribute, or find a very uh, another low key, very easy way for people to to say that they don't want to contribute. This could mean anything from truly um, letting you know before class, letting you know in a particular moment. I've seen people um, um, tell their students, you know, hey, if it's your turn, you've got nothing to say, you can easily just nod your head, like something very very simple that says. I've got nothing to contribute, go to the next person. There is another um, practical and free resource that everyone can use. It's it's from the Gender Avenger. Um, and it is called, I believe it's called Who's Dominating the Conversation. And it originally was developed in 2017. It's an app that you can either access on your phone or on your computer. And in a very tongue-in-cheek kind of way, when you go to the uh, resources website, it gives two options. It says either dude or not dude. And if you as the instructor are noticing or curious about like, gee, you know, are men dominating the conversation are not men, and that's meant to be a joke, not men are dominating the conversation, um, you know, you can click on dude or not dude. And when you click on dude or not dude, two things happen. One, it actually starts, the app itself starts keeping track of the amount of time that somebody's talking. And it keeps track of the actual percentage of the time that somebody is talking. So if you're clicking back and forth between dude and not dude, um, let's say there's, and again, I, I say this is a, a, a tongue in cheek kind of way, but let's say we have a class that lasts 100 seconds long. Matt, I'm not good at, I'm not good at math right now. You know, I'm just, I'll be honest with you. My brain's a little tired. Um, but Fair as enough. the conversation's unfolding and if you notice dude is speaking for 60% of the time and not dude is speaking for 40% of the time, it'll show you 60, 40, 60 seconds and 40 seconds. But it's a very easy way for anyone to get a sense of really who is, who is, who is talking and who's dominating the conversation. Um, another one, again, very, very easy. Uh, there's a couple of phrases that I like to use. One of them, please, by all means, adapt it and steal it if you want to. Um, I would like to hear from someone who has not spoken today. Mm. Mm -hmm. Something that simple where, and I, I think every classroom is this way, where we have a handful of students who are super eager. Um, but again, that eagerness while that's great to see on the one hand, on the, the flip side of that is it can actually be a barrier for students to contribute in a meaningful way to the environment in which they're learning. Mm -hmm. So those are those are two examples I can think of off the top of my head. Um, some Again, some other obvious ones, being able to provide constructive feedback and encouragement. 
um, using the same tone of voice with all students. Oftentimes, now granted, we're uh, we're firmly in COVID for a little while, but assuming we are back in person uh, in the not too distant future, just be very attentive to differences in communication styles. Sometimes students have a really subtle way of trying to tell you. They have these cues that they want to speak or that they have a they have a question. And sometimes I know um, when I am about to ask a question because we're having a great discussion in class, I will deliberately frame it as, all right, I have a really interesting question. We're going to a really, really great place. I'm going to ask this question before you raise your hand and before you respond, I want you to wait eight seconds, okay? Now the question is, you know, insert the question and then wait. And I think that was eight seconds. That was. And the point that I'm trying to make there is sometimes silence is your best friend. And eight seconds in that instance, it's totally a cultural construct, but silence can feel like an eternity and it can feel heavy. Exactly. So it's using that to your advantage um, to encourage students to really take some time to think about a potential response. And really the other side of that practice is to give students the opportunity to think and hopefully for those who are a bit shyer, um, give them the opportunity to contribute in a meaningful way. Now, the cultural construct I mentioned about the eight seconds, and this is something that I think is unique to the United States, is that Americans, we do not like silence. Not at all. And so this is the part again where sometimes not saying anything or not doing anything can be can work to your benefit because eventually somebody will raise their hand. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the other thing that we want to like foreground is you as the the um you as the instructor are the ones who help to usher in whatever the atmosphere of that room will be, whatever mm -hmm. the safety of that room will be. And so if there is safety in that silence, that is because of the work that you helped to cultivate in the culture of your classroom. It's again, it goes back to something that we talked about, I think like literally the first episode, the culture of the classroom is everyone's doing all of the students in that room. That's their, we all, you know, and I say we, because I was at one at one point, but that's that's everybody's job, but the leadership relative to that culture is led by the instructor of that space. So if we are going to foreground the marginalized in that room, if we're going to acknowledge that people who don't necessarily traditionally get an opportunity to talk regularly are uh, the ones that um, are going to make have space made for them in all of that situations and all of that as it exists. That is something that is in that that charge is given to you as the instructor. And so and you wouldn't be here listening to us, you know, ramble about all of these things if you didn't believe in that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we should explicitly lay that bare because it is in that silence that you or, or shall I say you don't get to a space of silence without the safety that you've built prior. Mm. Say that again. You do not get to a place of silence without the safety that you've built prior. You don't. 
Um, and I've been in classrooms where there was no safety built prior and the silence is cringeworthy is a very polite way to say it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and it is deafening or we end up getting into an echo chamber because we hear the same five people talking and there are very strong opinions that sway the entire room towards one direction. Mm. Um, and because of all of those things occurring, it decimates the ability for thought to be developed. It decimates the ability for ideas to proliferate. It definitely like, it decimates the reason that the classroom is formed. And that is so that an exchange of ideas can occur mm -hmm. and an internal adjustment to the way in which we have thought previously for everybody. That's instructor, that's students, everyone in that room, that we're able to have that transformational action. And that sometimes only happens in the silence that is provided because someone with a still small voice at the back of the room goes, well, you know, I think I disagree. And the rest of the room goes, huh? And we listen. Hmm. So that's coming from somebody who's an auditory processor who likes to say a lot of things. And is constantly, I, I mean, I have a very heavy voice. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a mindful of those things. Uh, my partner says this all the time. She's like, you can say things with such conviction that I don't, can't, I can't not believe it. I have to, she's like, you have to be mindful of that and be careful. Yeah. You have to be careful. So like, she's like, give the caveat. If you are still thinking about something and be like, I wonder if, or, you know, from my perspective or like give caveats, don't just make declarative statements mm -hmm. <laughs> for that reason, mm -hmm. for that reason. Um, but yeah. Uh, so I'm, since I'm acknowledging the fact that the world is definitely involved in, or has pushed in while we're doing this recording, I, I feel like I would be uh, remiss to not acknowledge that John Ossoff has officially been called as the declared and projected winner of the David Perdue John Ossoff race, which puts the Senate in control by the Democrats. Just feel like we need to say that theoretically, that the work that we're doing here on this podcast should be showing up in much more tangible and intentional spaces in our country because of the majority that exists now should be, should be, should be is the operative phrase. It's our job to be asking them to do that and holding their feet to the fire appropriately. Cisco, what were you going to say? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sometimes it's like when you have a class, you invite a guest lecture and just says a bunch of wild stuff and you're like, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but I, you know, I would even say like, I wouldn't even say the word should. I think the fact that the guidebook exists the fact that it is available for $4.99, the fact that if you personally as an individual are struggling mm. or experiencing hardship yeah. and that $4.99 can be a lot of money, um, email me. Please email me. I will give you a copy for free. I received a request from as far away as Germany um, earlier this week. You know, it's fine. Literally, it, it takes me 
20 seconds to respond the minute I sit down at a computer. Um, the fact that this podcast exists, exactly. you, you know, I seriously, we, we go on and uh, about different approaches or different techniques. I think there is, I, a lot of power in the individual because these conversations and because the work is pushing forward exactly and it's not up to you know if somebody has questions or wants to debate it it's sort of like you know what this class is trying to get across is you know what is your as we've talked about ad nauseum i think in the past and over the past couple of years michael mm. you know what's the evidence what are the facts what do you think is actually at stake are we really talking about the same thing right right you right. know i used the example a couple of weeks ago from the free speech debates at the university of chicago and every semester i've done a very um practical exercise the answer for the most part is not really Mm. So what's there really to debate if we're not really talking about the same thing? Um, it can devolve into a shouting match. Exactly. And I would argue the importance of this work, and we see it all the time, so, sometimes subtle and sometimes very public ways, is that schools, at the end of the day, are one of the very few places in American society where people can openly talk, discuss, and debate these kind of issues. Mm. And teachers, and I think you said it beautifully, Michael, a lot of our, our role in this process is that we can help facilitate, that we make it possible. And, and quite frankly, I think teachers and educators have more power than, than we think. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. I think that the, the biggest takeaway to that point is well heck the to that point is the two guys sitting on this call right now yeah that's that's the that's it like i should never have gotten to where i am and in large part a lot of that success is yeah i've had family that has pushed me and what have you but i had to have teachers who while i was in the classroom saw me hmm. they had to see me and go hey don't it's not wrong it's just different so let's get you to where you understand the thing that is what everybody else is doing or who saw me and said hey everybody else has told you that you can't do that and i'm going to tell you that's not true mm. and that's yeah so my i i will always credit one of the first teachers that ever saw me for my humanity and was actually one of the first teachers of color that I ever had actually was she the first teacher of color I ever had and her name. And, and I, I openly said this in a lot of places, so I don't feel a, a problem with saying her name uh, is Kathy Durham, black woman. She was my fourth grade teacher. Uh, she's a close family friend, even to this day. And um, she saw me, she saw me and she said, I know what you're going through. And I'm not going to let 
that be a determining factor of where you go. Mm-hmm. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. Like she always was checking up. She gave me a sense of safety and security. I mean, this is one of the reasons why there are programs in the world where you teach for two years and then you leave. Uh, and that program has actually changed its model because they realize that there is the function of stability, even if you're not in a classroom with that instructor and that educator, but there, this is at the lower levels of, of education. So elementary, middle and high school, um, you know, they have acknowledged that research says if there are people in the building who you trust and who know you, you will be more tied to that building. You will go finish the work that you set to start out to do. Mm-hmm. So you know, knowing that Miss Durham was going to just show up and she would do it. She would just show up sometimes in a terrifying way because I would be <laughs> always cutting up and acting a fool. And she would just show up. And I was like, how did you know to come? Like, uh, nobody set up a bat signal like that. I mean, <laughs> she's like, she just would just show up. She's like, you never man. know when I'm watching and where I am. <laughs> I, I, so it, it's funny, right? So there, there, hey, a general point before I share a story. That I think relates exactly what you're talking about. I want everyone who's listening right now, um, think of the first educator who truly influenced you. And if you haven't thanked them, please do. Mine was Judith Clark in Whiteside Elementary in Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> four foot 11. <laughs> four, four foot 11. Now, granted, this was early 90s, had a beautiful perm, beautiful, like all over go. the place, perm. <laughs> and I do remember, though, that experience in third grade where you're seen for the first time. Mm. And I do remember the point that my and the involvement that both of my parents had in my education. And I say this openly, I wouldn't be where I'm at if it weren't for my parents, where they, I think, intuitively saw that, wow, Cisco positively responds to this teacher. They would go to PTA meetings. And I remember one of the PTA meetings, he gave our home phone number to the teacher. And my dad has this incredible way of being charming and can like, I don't know what the right word is, but he would say some of the effect of like, Here's, here's our home phone number. And he would do this in front of me, mind you. So he was sending a message and conveying all sorts of right, things. Right, right. You know, so please. Only like black and brown dads can. Right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> he was like, you know, here, here's our home phone number. Give me a call if he's doing well or if he needs help or he's acting out. <laughs> Those I re- And I remember that. Well, because you think about it, right? Like, it, and it's one, right. of the, it's one of these things like, you know, it's like, man, message received. I don't have to do with that other than like. Mrs. Clark is four for 11. Yes, ma'am. Like, you know, you know what I mean, it changes the whole right, dynamic right, in terms right. of how you, how you, how, how I viewed her. Um, but yeah, again, I joke around. She's four foot 11, towering, towering figure in my life because of those early experiences within a formal educational environment. Right. Exactly. 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 I, uh, it's funny that you talk about like parental permissions so <laughs> go, go on. <laughs> it's funny that you talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, Kathy Durham was one of those, part of the reason she's a close family friend was because of those parental permissions. She was the first woman that I ever knew. Okay. So we're going to date ourselves a little bit, right? So, uh, we, um, 
uh, I mean, I grew up in the like cell phones were starting to come to bear age. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like if you understand what free nights and free nights and weekends are, then you know how old I am. Anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm 32, but you know, you get what I'm saying. But uh, uh, the no, question uh, is, did you have dial up? That's the only question. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, don't pick up that phone while I'm on. I'm trying to download a this paper. That's yeah. it. Like the, the one picture that you need for your project so you can put it in your diorama. Yeah. yeah that yeah. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you sat on the you literally were there for 35 minutes and then like the very end of it was about to show up. Yep. Someone picked the phone up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Lost the connection. Anyway. Oh man. Um, <laughs> I do know what you mean, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh no, I um I just uh, I had parents who very much believed in the idea that if Miss Durham needed to get them, that they knew that she had in her phone that was on her hip that she reminded us of every day. She would show you if you were acting a fool. She would be like, she'd be like, Michael, come here, come here. I come over. And she'd be like, she'd pull out her phone, and this is like the not a flip phone. It's the like the lower part folds down and then you extend the antenna. She oh pull God. it up. <laughs> right, right. She would pull it out with this little green backlit. It's a Nokia, right? Yeah. Little green backlit light. And she would go to where my parents' number was saved. Oh man. And she would show it to me. That's and my cold, father was man. a truck driver. So she had my dad's cell phone number, which you were never supposed to because of free nights and weekends, you were not supposed to call him during the day. <laughs> <laughs> so a phone call during the day was like scary right yeah uh so she had that one and she had our house number um the landline and she would she would just show it to me and she'd be like now i know that mama and daddy bets don't want me to call them so i know that whatever you're doing right now you don't mean to do and you really want to fix it and you better believe sure as shooting i fixed it all the time yeah. all the time yeah <laughs> all the time <laughs> yeah oh man the, the thing that would scare me too um in addition to all of that is and i don't know if it, it was the same way where you grew up everybody like it wasn't just that you get in trouble in school if that phone call was made hey so so to take a step back if you only had 400 <laughs> minutes a month between you know before 7 p.m right like, yes like, like come on it, it's like you're not only getting in trouble, you're costing me my minutes. And if I go exactly. over, it's on you, right? Exactly. So there's that part of it. Um, but then you go home and then it's like, it's not just your parents, but then it's your neighbors and then your friends' parents. And then it's like this long line of gradual dread until mom and dad get home. You know what I mean? And then. Right, right. Oh, man. Yeah. No, I remember. Yeah. I remember. Good times. <laughs> Oh man, thank you for humoring us as we go down memory lane. Yeah, um, we you gotta laugh, man. Seriously, like you have to laugh, you know? You it's, are not joking. I'm serious, man. Joking. Gotta laugh. Oh man. Anyway, all right. So I I think the big takeaway, because you did a really good job of talking about how to adjust people and, and what have you. I think the, the big takeaway is about the safety and construction of your room. How do you create a culture and a climate that wants to center students who wouldn't normally feel valued or validated to speak up? Mm -hmm. Um, 
and specifically with gender dynamics, I, I want to go back to and stress that um, that story that you told from our colleague. How do we as instructors not add to the paper cuts that our students are already experiencing? And that's a question that I want all listeners to be thinking about. I want you to marinate on that. And I want you to make a point to say, like, I'm going to do my job to make this space available for you to see and realize who you are. But I myself, and if, if I myself, I'm not going to intentionally cause harm, but should I do so, I will do what is necessary to rectify the situation for you. I actually have an example where that happened, where I had uh, an instructor who caused harm to me. It, it, they made a joke that they didn't, I don't think they meant for it to come off the way that it did, but it like, it stifled me pretty significantly. Um, and it was, it was pretty harmful. Um, and, uh, what was wonderful was that this instructor, after realizing the harm was done, mm -hmm. it took like a class for that to happen, but they came back to me and said, Hey, I think I made a joke that didn't land right. Yeah. And I'm sorry for that. I, I, I don't mean that in that way. And I don't want you to feel antagonized in any way. And that was really, really wonderful. And I, ironically enough, we're really close colleagues now. <laughs> wow! So it was just, it was really wonderful that that happened. It, it, not, not the fact that the, you know, that we fell out of community, but the fact that they made the point to rectify the situation provided for me the ability to breathe and thrive and feel really seen. Yeah. I, A, I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, and I think you're saying it, you know, we mentioned not just to, you know, to stop, you know, you know, being, being mindful of the invisible cuts that people walk around with. Um, but there are opportunities for healing. Right. right. Um, and that part, again, I think is so critical and so central. Um, in everyday life, way beyond the classroom, I, I think the two words that are um, entirely just not used enough in so many aspects of everyday life is, um, I'm sorry. Mm. Yes. An another uh, my next one is, uh, I messed up. It's three. Yep. Another one is, I'll do better. Yes. And it sounds really, really simple. And I know we started this conversation. We tried to. The outside world sometimes bleeds in um, around gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, but it really is the invisible, um, the invisible glue that makes a classroom possible to me is, is the most important part of this project. It is the most important part of it because that will feed into notions of trust, belonging, people wanting to show up to your classroom. I think that's, you know, and, and that is one of the best feelings when students show up because they genuinely want to be there. And yeah, there, there is a dynamic in the sense of we give assignments, there is homework, 
right. grades. Right. And, you know, we, there's no way around that. But the fact that students want to be there because you make the experience better can't right. overemphasize that enough. Right. And I think that in that statement, you kind of link back to the function of building metacognition in your teaching. When we are aware of ourselves and how we are interacting with our students, it does actually provide space for students to feel. Well, that's it. It provides space for students to feel. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Full stop. All right, Cisco. Is yeah. there anything else we want to leave? We've, we've laid out a lot of stuff today. <laughs> is there um, anything else you want to leave our, our listeners with today? All I got is um, I love you. Take care of yourselves. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Stay safe. And we'll see you next week. Welcome back to Centering the Margins. <laughs> what just happened? All right, sorry. Let me let me shut up now. Go on. What happened? <laughs> there was such a long silence, and I was like, I, just... <laughs> I got in my own head, man. Anyways, <laughs> I'm listening to the music. You're just jealous because you can't hear it on your side. Yeah, I'm gonna put on. I'm gonna put on something else. My beat will be way off. Be like, well, good luck, man. I don't know. <laughs> You're like, I don't really know how he's going to come back from that. But uh... <laughs> thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Like these dudes are trying way too hard. <laughs> <laughs>